How many of y'all remember the television series Lost? Okay. It's, uh, it's listed now as one of the top ten television series of all time. Uh, it had an average regular gross uh, audience of about 16 million people that watched it. I was not one of them. When Jody and I moved to Yazoo City, however, we uh, made a few friends, and uh, one of the couples that we got to be friends with, Rod and Laura Henderson, loved Lost, and Jody had been watching since the very first episode, and so they invited us over to watch Lost. And so we went, and we started watching Lost, and we went the first week, and we had a lot of fun, and I was as lost as a blue jay, and we went back the second week and the third week, and finally I thought to myself, Um, In order for this to work, in order for me to have a good time, I'm going to have to get up to speed on exactly what the situation is. And so I went, and I went on the website, and um, I I watched all of the episodes in the span of about two weeks. Now, they started in 2004. We started watching and visiting with friends in 2009. Okay, you do the math. I watched a lot of Lost so that I wouldn't be lost anymore, to get up to speed. So sometimes I think what happens in this season, right, is there's a rush. There's a rush straight away to the manger. We go right to Jesus. And we come, you all left last week, you walked out of here, none of this was here. You showed back up the Sunday after Thanksgiving, the first Sunday in Advent, and it's what? Christmas. We're singing Christmas hymns. The sanctuary is decorated. The the, uh, church is decorated beautifully, I might add. But there's a little bit of a rush straight to Jesus. And what we need to do is we need to back up a little bit and we need to remember the story. We need to figure out how it is. Listen, if you parachute into Luke chapter 2, if you, start, if you start reading the story of Herod and his plot to kill the baby, if you start reading about wise men making their trip from the east, if you start reading about shepherds, if you just rush all the way to that, but you don't understand necessarily the why or how it is that we got there, you're going to miss out. The story isn't going to be as meaningful to you. And I'm not just talking about those of you who may have walked in here this morning. It's your first time in church. I'm talking about us, right? God's people. We can never forget the story. Don't ever, don't ever jump straight to grace, okay? If you read the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, if you were confessing it along with me, you saw there in the second part, That question, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And what is the first thing that you must know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The first thing is how great my sin and misery are. So this morning, we're beginning in in a passage, Genesis chapter 6 that upon first read is pretty depressing, isn't it? What a depressing section of Scripture. Because you come here and you, you begin to see the problem. You begin to realize the problem that God grieves over. 
5 and 6 establish for it exactly the situation. God looked down, the Lord Yahweh, He looked down, He saw the wickedness of the human race and how wicked they become on the earth. He saw that every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then verse 6, the Lord regretted, NIV, that He had made human beings on the earth. And His heart was deeply troubled. Now, you hear that language, okay? Does the Lord regret? Does the Lord forget? Does the, all of these things. And, and the writer, Moses, is using language to help convey the sense of the seriousness of the situation for us. That we, had, that we were so astray, that we were so far off course, that when God looked down and He saw this human race that He longed to interact with, remember, the reason for which He created us. He created Adam and Eve. And, that in, and in Genesis we read early on, what was it that He was doing with them every day? Why, they were fellowshipping together. He was walking in the garden with them. And so God created us for that interaction. And now He's looking down. He longs for that interaction. And what does He find? He finds that the inclination of the human race, our hearts collectively, are completely far from Him. And He regretted even creating us. And there was this this deeply troubled sense in his heart. John Currid offers this translation. And Yahweh was grieved that he had made mankind on the earth and he was vexed to his heart. He was sad. When God saw the situation among his creation, one author said it caused him relational grief. This grief that the relationship that He created us for was broken. Have a relationship in your life that's ever been broken? If you've ever had a broken heart, you know a little bit of what that must have felt like for Him. Because He created us for that interaction that He now was unable to have with us. Now let's think about it. Because that is, that is the problem that God grieves over. There is this grief in our Creator's heart for us. What exactly is the problem and man reveals it to us? That's our second point, the problem that man reveals. You see it, um, it it's midway through verse 5. Every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is the issue. Here it is. Boil it down. Our hearts were not directed towards Him. Our hearts were not directed in a Godward direction, but they were directed towards evil. They were directed towards other things. And that is a big deal because God created us and He intended for our hearts to be inclined towards Him. Him. He intended for us to be in love with Him. He intended for us to have fellowship 
with Him. That we would, as Adam and Eve did, walk in the garden in the cool of the day. But that was not the case. And so here's the issue. You and I were created to love God. That is the, that is the calling of all humanity. Listen, sometimes we talk about the fact that we are all worshipers, okay? And so John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. And what he was getting at when he said the heart is an idol factory is we will manufacture any number of things that we, in order to worship because we're worshiping creatures. And so we will give ourselves readily to lots of things because our hearts long for that worship. But we're also, one author has said, we're lovers. God made us to be lovers. People who love. And the question is, what is it that we're loving? Because the text here in Genesis 5, uh, in Genesis 6, tells us we were not loving Him. And if we're not loving Him, what is it that we're loving? We're loving ourselves. We are loving ourselves. If we, if we boil it all the way down, that's it. We didn't have a Godward love. We had an inward self-love. And so when you have an inward self-love, you, you begin to do things because you think those are the things that are going to please you and satisfy you and bring the joy and delight that God has promised to you into your life. God created us. He set us in motion so that a Godward love would motivate us in all areas of life. So that we would, we would love Him and everything else would fall into place. The problem is we've reversed that. And we tend to think if we love everything else, then we'll get God as well. And He'll just be thrown in and it'll be good and it'll be kind of an extra for us. But God says, no, love me and you get the goodness of everything else that's out there in the world. Too often, we want to boil our relationship with God down to a simple set of rules. We want to think of our relationship with God in, in terms of right and wrong, yes and no. Just give me the Ten Commandments. Let's put it on the courthouse steps. Let's put it out in the school. Let's, let's put the Ten Commandments everywhere because that will solve our problem. Listen, what did the Apostle Paul tell us in, in, in Romans chapter 3? No man is saved through obedience to the law. Rather, the law does what? It reveals our sin. That's the, that is one of the reasons why God gave the law to us. So, what are we doing then when we boil our relationship with God down into, this, into these rules? Thinking that if we keep all of these rules, we're going to have a right relationship with Him. But obedience in our lives isn't, I'm, I'm, I'm having a, this thing keeps yanking on me. Obedience to him isn't some technical submission to rules. Obedience to him is rooted in a love for God. When you love someone, you desire to serve them and you find joy in their joy. We were created to live that way with God. Remember, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And what was his answer? 
It wasn't go out and do the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God. The greatest commandment. Love God. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you find that fascinating? That the greatest commandment that Jesus identified was love. It wasn't abstain from X, Y, and Z. It, was, it wasn't don't smoke, chew, or date girls who do, or whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't he, he, didn't, he didn't tell us abstain from this. He told us do this. Have a heart of love for God. That's the greatest commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself. God created us to love Him. And from that love that we have for Him would flow a longing to live within the boundaries that He's given to us in life. Think about it though. We usually reverse it. And what we say is, if I'm obedient and I kind of stay within these boundaries and I do a pretty good job of that, then there will be a love relationship with God. And God says, no, find me, and that boundary stuff will all come in the end. How does John say it in 1 John, uh, or, uh, 1 John 5? If we love God, what? We'll keep his commandments. What's the converse of that? If we don't keep his commandments, we love something else. And that's the problem. The problem that God grieves over is not that we don't keep His commandments. You've got to hear this. The problem we have is not that we don't keep God's commandments. That is a result of the real problem. The real problem is we do not have and we do not cultivate a true love for God. The real problem is that we are lovers of something other than Him. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And then he says this, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Did you hear it? He died for all that those who live should what? Should no longer live for themselves. The modern therapeutic world, we call that self-love. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard that you're only going to be good for others if you can love yourself, and so you better get busy. I want you to listen to this quote. How many of you all are familiar with Charles Krauthammer? Okay. Charles Krauthammer, not necessarily an evangelical Christian. This is what Charles Krauthammer says about self-love. The reigning cliche of the day is that in order to love others, one must first learn to love himself. This formulation, Krauthammer says, love thyself, then thy neighbor, is a license for unremitting self-indulgence because the quest for self-love is endless. By the time you have finally learned to love yourself, you'll find yourself playing golf in 
you'll find yourself playing golf at Leisure World. Krauthammer, not exactly an evangelical Christian, gets the problem with self-love. The Apostle Paul was identifying that self-love. Apart from Christ, that's all we have. Even in Christ, tell me it's not a struggle. Of course it is. That's why the Apostle Paul says, the things I don't want to do, those I keep on doing... Because it's hard to see that self displaced. And this is the problem we have. We love ourselves more than we love God. God says, love me above everything else, and the everything else that is good for you will come to you. Finally, the problem the Savior solves. So, here we have it. An entire world, Genesis chapter 6, living for themselves, following their own heart's desires, lovers of themselves instead of lovers of God. Let me ask you, when you look around the world, do you see that problem today? Why do you think there are tyrants? Why why do you think there are, uh, why do you think there's violence in the inner city? Why do you think there are problems abounding all over the place? It's it's typically because we have a longing and a desire that we want met in our hearts. We are lovers of ourselves. And even as you and I can look out there at the world and we can identify all of that, we have to start where? Right here at home. D.L. Moody said uh, the greatest problem is the greatest problem I have is with D.L. Moody, not with other men. You and I are that problem. But guess what? Look back at the passage, and you'll see the guess what? You'll see the rest of the story, if you want to put it that way, and it begins in verse 8, and it starts like this. But Noah... But Noah, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There was someone, one, there was a man way back yonder, and his name was Noah, and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God called him out, and he gave him a purpose, and he set him a building. And, And Noah was obedient to God, and he followed him. Now, if you continue reading the rest of the story, Genesis 6, Genesis 7, Genesis 8, you'll eventually end up in the Ancestry.com of Genesis, okay? And what you'll see there is the lineage of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. You'll start reading about his boys. And in the reading of all of those boys, guess what? A name pops out. It's not Jesus. It's the name Abram. In the middle of all of that stuff, this name comes out, and the name is Abram. And of course, in Genesis chapter 2, what do we learn? Or Genesis chapter 12, what do we learn? We learn that God went about calling, making for himself a people, pursuing after us. Because you've got to know 
This Abram guy was living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a polytheist by any stretch. That means he worshipped all the gods in order to cover his bases. And God went to Ur and he called Abram to himself and he said to him, he gave him a promise, multiple, multiple faceted promise in Genesis 12. And he begins by promising him that he is going to make him the father of a multitude. A multitude that will be so numerous that they will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Listen, God had Noah. He had Noah and Noah's boys, their families. And now he's calling to himself this Abram and he's promising him that he is going to make him into a nation of people. And he's going to give them a land. And he is going to bless them. And then he tells Abram, I will make you a blessing to the nations. Keller always says, God never calls you in and blesses you without also making you a blessing. This is where he gets that. He brings Abram to himself. He gives him a new name, Abraham. And he tells him, you will bless the nation." He doesn't bless the nations for a long time. A long, 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 long time. It isn't until the baby in the manger, it isn't until Jesus arrives on this earth that we begin to see the plan. Finally, the rosebud is there. It's on the bush. And we see what God has in store for us. Our salvation. Here's the reality. You and I have a problem. We can't fix it. It took, it took 2,000 years of God pursuing and loving, of God beating back the plan of the evil one, and not just the evil one, of God beating back us from ruining the plan. We had guys like David on the scene. Good guys, lovers of God. Men who followed after God with, their, with all of their heart and yet we were flawed and they were flawed and they had problems and they had issues and they had massive sin struggles all over the place. And in the midst of all of that and through all of that, what does God say? I'm done with you. No. He says, I love you. And there's one coming greater than David who will make it all right for you. Listen, Your problem, my problem is, we're lovers of ourselves. That's why John 3.16 is such an amazing verse because it said, God so loved you. He so loved the world that He sent Jesus into the world to live and die so that you and I might be right with Him. As you make your way into the Advent season, don't skip over the problem. Don't minimize the problem in your own life. It's not people out there. It is not inner city. It's, not, it's, it's none of that. It's you and I. Remember the G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton quote, right? They sent out, a paper sent out a bunch of questionnaires, and then one of the questions that they asked was, what is the problem with mankind? And Chesterton wrote back, I am. As you make your way into this season, we celebrate Christmas, the beauty of the gospel. 
Don't forget, don't forget why he had to come. Because you and I have a problem. And only Jesus can cure it. Let's pray. Father, we want to pause right now. We want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to praise you for the provision that you've made in Jesus Christ. The one who came, who lived and died. The one who fulfilled every demand of the law we would be able to stand before you. Not in our righteousness, but in His. Father, we need a Savior. Father, as we celebrate the season together as a body, Father, let us be mindful of the problem. Let us be open with our sin. Let us confess to one another our struggles. And then let us find hope in the One who came born of a virgin, one who suffered, the one who died. In his name we pray. Amen.